The monthly periodical Christianity magazine has um, on its front cover this month and its feature article is on what it calls the biggest revival in church history. I wonder when that was, the biggest revival in, in the history of the church. Well, it was now. But if you look around and see church buildings used as nightclubs, carpet shops, or whatever, you might be thinking that can't be. But it is now, but it's just not here. In fact, the article is about astonishing church growth in, in China. And that church growth is taking place amongst um, very severe persecution of the church. So, for example, in um, just December, uh, last December, 100 members of a church in Chengdu were arrested. Most of them have been released since, but a handful of them, including their pastor and the pastor's wife and a few other church leaders, are still um, in a, are under arrest somewhere. Nobody has heard from them in the nine months since. The pastor of that church, um, <clears throat> before he became a Christian in adulthood, he already was a, a prominent lawyer and already was someone with, who was well known and an advocate for human rights. And he anticipated that trouble might come. And he had left a letter with a friend and said, if I disappear, if I'm arrested, and if I'm away for more than two days, I want you to, to read this letter. I want you to make this letter known. In the letter he wrote, amongst other things, separate me from my wife and children, ruin my reputation, destroy my life and my family. The authorities are capable of doing all of these things. However, no one can force me to renounce Jesus is the Christ, Son of the eternal living God. He died for sinners and rose to life for us. He is my King and the King of the whole earth, yesterday, today, and forever. I am His servant, and I am imprisoned because of this. His story made it into some of the national press. The story made it into New York Times and, and well, international press, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Reuters, and more. Pastor Wang Yi is his name, and uh, if you check that on the internet, you can get more of his story. Persecution of the church is not new, and persecution linked with growth of the church is not new either. And in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, what we have is Jesus addressing seven churches, ordinary churches, gatherings of believers identified not by some great acts of piety or outstanding miracles, but identified simply by where they gather. And so last week we looked at the first of these letters, the church in Ephesus. Today Leslie read about the church in Smyrna. These and the others are seven locations along a Roman postal circuit in part of the world that is now modern-day Turkey. Each church is in a particular place, in Ephesus and Smyrna and so on. 
made up by the ordinary folk there, people who lived there, people who bought food at the local market, who spoke the same language, who people who were familiar with the same local landmarks and customs and so on. But as well as being in that particular place, they were also in Christ. For it is only when they are in Christ is the church present. The church is not. Otherwise, a church would simply be a club or a gathering of like-minded people. But that's not the church. The church is the people who are in Christ. And so, the church that, um, in these verses that we read is both in Smyrna and in Christ. And it has to be both. Jesus spoke of his followers being in, but not of the world. In John chapter 17, he says, they are not of the world but I have sent them into the world. And there are then tensions and challenges, triumphs and failures, as the church seeks to live out that dual nature, being in the world, but not of the world. Now, there are two things in the seven letters in uh, Revelation chapter 2 and 3. There are two things that Jesus says to all seven. And they, they correspond to that dual nature of being in the world, but not of the world. In terms of them being in, sorry, but not of the world, Jesus says to each of the seven, I know. I know something about you. In this case, in Smyrna, in verse 9, I know your afflictions and your poverty. Jesus knows, for the church is not on her own. The church is not in existence apart from the life of Christ. The church is not left to her own devices to summon up her own strength but to know the working of the Lord who is with her. I know you. Religious persecution in China um, is not so terribly well known. And one of the reasons it's not so terribly well known is, well, hey-ho, it doesn't get an awful lot of publicity. And one of the reasons it hasn't had much publicity in this country is simply that the authorities here are touchy about upsetting the Chinese because we do so much, so much trade with the Chinese. And so not wanting to upset that, not wanting to, you know, just have the trouble for the economy because that loses votes, they just keep it quiet. So most of us don't know. Never heard about Pastor Wang Yi and many like him. But Jesus can say to each and every one of these suffering believers, I know. I know because I am with you. But at the, same, the other thing that he says to each of the seven churches in these letters is, at verse 11 in this case, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the church. Now that's not a reference to our physical hearing. It's not as though Jesus has got a special um, preference for those of us who can hear over those who are deaf. The folk that Alison is signing for online today are not discounted by Jesus. The gospel is for all of us. No matter what we can do, cannot do what we have and do not have. So when Jesus says, whoever has ears to hear, he's talking about listening to the message, taking the message in, as opposed to letting it bounce off us or pass through us without properly engaging. Now, that happens, doesn't it? It happens not just with the words of Jesus. Have you ever thought or have you ever said, it's like talking to a brick wall, 
Oh, some of you have. <laughs> have you ever thought or have you ever said, well, you know, they just hear what they want to hear? You are, what my mother used to say to me, conveniently deaf. Selective things do you take in, but, but not others. And that's what we can be like too with the words of Jesus. We can be the wall. We can conveniently not hear words that challenge our pride, that command our obedience, that highlight our lapses, that interrupt our fantasies. Listening, spiritual listening, where we take in what the Word of God says, is one of the key tasks of the church. It's one of the things without which which the church is not the church, because it's moved itself from connections to Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all in their Gospels, have the parable of the sower as the first of the parables in the Gospels. You know, the parable where the seed is sown in the different soils and there's different reactions and different responses according to whether the, the, the soil has been good soil for growth. And Jesus says it's about how we respond to the Word of God. The seed in that parable is the Word of God. And sometimes that bounces off like it does in the path. Sometimes we take it on board, but only for a short time, and so on and so on. And Jesus says in that parable, whoever has ears to hear. And so both of these, in and of, but not of the world, are, are recognized by Jesus as he speaks to these seven churches in Revelation. I know you. I know you're not just like anything and everyone else. I'm with you. You're not of the world. But also, you're in the world, and let's face it, sometimes because you're in the world, you're no very good at hearing. Sometimes because you're in the world, you choose not to listen. Because Sometimes because you're in the world, you have the same frailties and, and, and excuses as everyone else, and you push the Word of God to the side. Now, what Jesus knows about the church in Smyrna is their afflictions and their poverty, verse 9. That's what he says to them. I know your afflictions and your poverty. Now, most of these believers came from the lower classes and would be materially poor, but to that was added the persecutions that came about because of their faith in Jesus. Some of them were thrown out of the family home. Some of them had their jobs taken off them. Some of them were imprisoned, and indeed some of them were killed just for the crime of following Jesus. A bit later, maybe 40, 50 years, we think, after the book of Revelation was written, there was an incident where a man in Smyrna, Polycarp, who was the bishop, so he would have been in his, maybe in his 30s or in his 40s when the book of Revelation was written. And when Jesus gave that word um, that Leslie read to the church in Smyrna, Polycarp probably was one of the folks there, as I say, a young, young man in his 30s or so. But later on, as the bishop, he was arrested and burned at the stake for refusing to say, Caesar is Lord. Publicly, he was taken to the stake at a local stadium and was told that if he denied Jesus, he would be killed. However, if he pledged loyalty to Caesar over Jesus, 
then he would be set free. Polycarp, by this time a man in his 80s, refused to say Caesar was better than Jesus. Folk there pled with Polycarp to change his mind. Polycarp said that the burning of his body would be over soon, but loyalty to Jesus would mean that he was free from the fires of eternal judgment. Now, it's to such a church. Jesus says, verse 9, I know your your poverty and your afflictions. It's to such a church that he says, be faithful, verse 10, even to the point of death. And Jesus in that verse is is not saying be faithful until you reach the end of your life, but rather be faithful even if it's going to cost you your life. To such the risen Christ, who himself endured suffering, shame, and death on a cross, promises the fruits of overcoming life in all its fullness. They may, Jesus says, endure the first death But the one who is victorious, verse 11, will not be hurt at all by the second death. Now, the first death is the bodily death to which we all come, except those who are still alive when Jesus returns. Jesus himself had already gone that way. And those who belong to him can know that he will at first welcome them on the other side of that first death, and then at the end raise them to new life in his final new world. But the second death, the cutting off from the kingdom of God, the cutting off from eternal life, is the fate of those who steadily refuse and who reject Jesus. For those who remain firm, There is the peace and joy and fullness of life that the gospel promises. And the only escape from that second death is when we trust Jesus and are willing to follow him no matter the cost. Now, we have known a bit in the Christian press in particular about the phenomenal church growth in China. More recently, and even less well-known, There's another place where the church, albeit on a smaller scale, but nevertheless seems to be growing a bit faster than in China. Where might that be? Iran. It seems that the hardline, cruel regime that was begun with the Ayatollah Khomeini has made many folk there disillusioned and realized that the truth must be elsewhere. And again, that church has faced huge persecution. Again, the authorities here have been slow to speak up for the freedom of belief and conscience and have neglected what the Christians in Iran are suffering. This time, not for reasons of trade, but because they don't want to upset delicate relationships between Islamic and Western countries. But Jesus knows what they're going through. And the Spirit is moving there and the church is growing. Now, Jesus himself made it clear that his followers would suffer. Now, we're not talking about the kind of suffering that is common to all people. Like others, we are subject to illness, we are subject to bereavement, things not working out as we would like them to work out 
getting caught in thunderstorms or whatever. These and more are part and parcel of being in a fallen, a broken world. But in addition to these, Jesus talked about how his followers would be persecuted for following him. He said, John 16, 33, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You will, he said, have trouble. Or again, <clears throat> in Luke's gospel, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. And this was the message that Jesus' followers took into the world. So in 2 Timothy, in fact, says the apostle, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Did you know that verse was there? Everyone will be, not might be, That is, one of the marks of following Jesus is to bear persecution or misunderstanding and rejection for his sake. Jesus says you can't follow him unless you're taking up your cross daily. Now, Jesus and his followers were not advocating suffering as a good thing in and of itself. And so the idiotic uh, Christian follower years later who thought it was good to stand in the freezing water up to his neck to help him to follow Jesus better was just being that a bit of a nutcase. Suffering for its own sake is not being commended here. Nor should we go out of our way to provoke opposition. And the church needs to be careful if and when persecution comes that it comes to us through our being faithful to Jesus and not because we're obnoxious, uncaring, arrogant, and dismissive. And the church has been guilty of all these things and more. And sometimes Christians have consoled themselves by saying, oh, well, it's persecution, you know, they're bound to give me a hard time because they gave Jesus a hard time, when in fact the reason that they're getting a hard time is because they've been horrible. Not from the Christian church, but it's actually a couple of um, Jehovah's Witnesses who, um, when I was in my first charge in Rochese, there was a young family um, whose infant child died. And the JW said to them, well, it's because you've not paid enough attention to God that God has taken your child. That was a monstrous thing to say. And completely unwarranted, the the scriptures, Jesus more than once was asked, is this happening to somebody because they've been bad? And Jesus says, no, it doesn't work like that. And if people say that kind of thing and then get some uh, throwback from that, quite frankly, they deserve it. So we have to be careful. Persecution is not something that in and of itself is necessarily a good thing. Now, what Jesus is talking about is how faithfulness to him will involve suffering. Why? Because we're in the world, but we're not of the world. And suffering like that, persecution for following Jesus, is what enables Christian growth. Now, this was the the case for Jesus himself, astonishingly. 
It says in Hebrews chapter 2 that God should make the pioneer of their salvation, that is Jesus, perfect through what he suffered. What made Jesus perfect? Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10, what he suffered. And then again in chapter 5 of Hebrews, the words with which we began our service, son though he was, he learned obedience. How? By going to school. He learned obedience as he did his PhD. He learned obedience as he followed the rabbi. He learned obedience from what he suffered. Now, if Jesus had to walk that way, what makes us think that there might be a way of following him that doesn't involve this? Now, it was not that Jesus was imperfect or flawed and therefore had to be made perfect or but simply that the root of suffering, the root of sacrificial service, was the only way that love would overcome. His rule was not going to be established by cruel force, but by embracing the way of the cross. And so the temptations that Jesus faced in the wilderness after his baptism, these temptations were temptations to avoid suffering, to try a shortcut to kingship. But if Jesus gave in to these temptations, he would have been pulling the rug from under his feet because self-serving and so on was not the way to establish the kingdom of God. And so the scriptures say that Jesus himself went that way and in doing so grew in faithfulness to God and that's the way for us to grow too. But that That should be obvious in one sense, shouldn't it? That we don't know we have something until it's tested or challenged. Um, You don't know whether the chair is good enough to sit on until you sit on it and put your weight there. We, We don't know until someone questions, can I do that? And it's the same, can I follow Jesus as Jesus intends to be followed? Can I do that without opposition? Well, we would never know. And so the New Testament is clear that, in fact, it's an opportunity for growth. And so James says in his letter, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Consider it joy, he says. Or again in the Letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul says, we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. Romans 5. And the New Testament uses illustrations such as a father disciplining his child, a metal worker refining metal, a gardener doing some pruning, New Testament uses illustrations like these to show that God's care and concern for us might involve hard times, but have our best interests at heart. Now, each of these processes, think about it, the father disciplining the child, the metal worker refining the metal, the gardener doing some pruning of the plants, each of these is a, a hard thing. Each of these is a negative thing. 
But each of them is a hard and a negative thing in order to produce a positive result. The disciplining of the child when it's done right and properly is for the child's good. The refining of the metal, which involves burning off all kinds of impurities, is so that there might be purer and better metal. The pruning is done so that there might be more fruitfulness in times to come for the plant. And these are the illustrations that they, they got, that's used in the New Testament, as well as words like the Apostle Paul's there in Romans 5, saying this is the route to Christian growth. Now, the UK church has not been growing um, as fast as the church in China, or indeed as the church in Iran and other places. A major factor is that we have not shown to those around us that Jesus is worth it. In Iran and in China and so on, people see what Christians do, how they rejoice even when things are very tough. In Smyrna, people would see what Polycarp said as he went to execution by burning at the stake. And they would think, I wonder if there's something in this Jesus business. Why does he do that? Why does somebody who, he just has to say Jesus is, Caesar is Lord. That's all he needs to do. He could say Caesar is Lord and maybe cross his fingers behind his back or something. Come on, Polycarp, just do that. And he knew it would be wrong. He knew Jesus was Lord. Pastor Wang Yi would easily have been released by renouncing Jesus, but he hasn't. Nine months. Where is he? What's he suffered? And one of the problems with the church in the West is that when people can look at us, they don't see enough that says Jesus is worth it. As I say, that doesn't mean that we have to go out and, and seek persecution and so on, but it does mean that there has to be the kind of giving, the kind of serving, the kind of commitment to Jesus' way that means that we will do that before other things. For what we've done in the West is that we've created a culture of non-committal or a culture of not much committal that avoids any suffering because Jesus simply doesn't matter enough to us. We think we want him, but there are limits to what we will sacrifice for him. We think we want him, but there are other things that we want, and some things, quite frankly, that we want more than we want Jesus. And we need to take time to rethink this. Why did Jesus do what he did? Why did he go that way? Why did he think it was worth learning obedience and being made perfect to be a savior? Why did he think it was worth it? Why have his followers called to follow in that same way? And do we think he is worth it? Do we serve, do we give in a way that hurts so that we notice what we're giving up? Very often not. 
Very often what we have done, what we have given, and I don't just mean financially, but it includes that, very much what we've done and what we have given is of stuff that we wouldn't necessarily miss, and then we think we've done the Jesus business. We haven't. Jesus says, take up your cross daily and follow. We can give all kinds of reasons to explain away the spiritual flabbiness of the church in the West, but but should we give these reasons? Would we be willing to say these things face-to-face with Jesus? Would we be willing to say these things if we were face-to-face with Pastor Wang Yi? Would we be willing to say these excuses if we were face-to-face with Polycarp? Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This morning I've quoted more from other parts of Scripture than I generally do in a sermon. And that's because I want to show just something of how widespread, how dominant is the teaching about serving Jesus in this kind of way. What Jesus says here to the church in Smyrna is not unique or odd, but in fact fits with that whole gospel. So then the Apostle Paul again in Philippians 3, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I might gain Christ and be found in him. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Let us pray.